0: Hello everybody and welcome to Uncork the Sun with the Vinstitute Wine School. I'm your host, Moss Kogel, and yes, that is a real name. This is the first podcast in a new series that I'll be producing in collaboration with Oliver Asoyuz Wine Country, which is a band of wineries from the epicenter of BC's wine region. In this podcast, we're going to be exploring various topics relating to wine in its production and its appreciation. What I won't be doing is tasting wine or describing wines for you on this podcast, because nobody wants to listen to me drink on microphone. What they do want is to watch me drink on camera. So this podcast is going to be paired with a monthly video live tasting, the first of which is going to be airing next week on Tuesday, April 28th. It's going to be streaming live from the Oliver Osoyos Wine Country Facebook and Instagram pages, so make sure that you follow us now to stay appraised. More information about both the podcast and the live tasting is also available at oliverasoyuz.com, where you can find information about all the events and wineries in this region. But enough plugging and housekeeping, let's get on to talk about my favorite topic. You thought I was going to say wine, but it's actually me! Let's talk about me! If you haven't met me before, I'm the founder and chief educator, uh, by which I mean basically the only educator, at the Institute Wine School, which is a public learning institution for the betterment of understanding of the wines of British Columbia, or something like that. I don't actually remember my own tagline. A typical institute class involves a group of people sitting at a couple of tables together face to face, tasting a number of wines and learning about not only the concepts behind winemaking and wine appreciation, but about the context of British Columbia wine and how it relates to wine in general. Now, for those of you who are listening to this podcast when it first comes out, you'll have a pretty good understanding of why a close, intimate gathering of a bunch of strangers in a small room is suboptimal. And if you're listening to this far enough in the future that you don't know what I'm talking about, then that's very encouraging news. So today I'm talking to you from my own home. The message right now from Destination British Columbia is explore BC later. The message from the Oliver and Winery Association is uncork the sun at home. These are good messages right now. It's important for people to stay at home, to keep social distance, and to support local businesses in whatever way is possible while still maintaining safety. Lovely thing is that British Columbia wine is accessible to you right now, right where you are inside your own home you can have a case shipped to you and it could possibly even arrive tomorrow certainly within a couple of days and so this is a very good time for people to be examining the topic of today's show which is your personal wine cellar for this, I'm going to head down to my own wine cellar. So go. I'm going to get my whiteboard. This is my uh, personal whiteboard, my home whiteboard. I have a whiteboard everywhere that I go. I've got a whiteboard in my car. And I'm just going to head downstairs to where I keep my wine. I'm going to touch on a few different concepts here today. The first is how to cellar your wine. The second thing is going to be what makes a certain wine cellar well. What is it about certain wines that age better than other wines? And the third thing that I'm going to talk about is how to know what you have that you should drink now or what you should leave for later. Let's start with how to cellar your wines, how to create a wine cellar, or if you're not actually going to create a proper formal wine cellar, at least how to keep them in a way that is going to uh, maintain consistency and ensure proper aging without any wine spoiling. It shouldn't be a surprise to anybody listening that wines can become damaged over time and with age. There are various factors that can afflict a wine and uh, either spoil it a little bit so that it isn't quite ideal or straight up destroy it, uh, making it completely undrinkable. Obviously, all these are things that we wanna avoid We all know how this goes. You do your trips to the Okanagan, you learn exactly how many cases of wine you can fit into the trunk of your hatchback, you sign up for some wine clubs, you start to get wine shipped to you on a semi-regular basis, and eventually you hit the singularity. The singularity in technology is the point where machines gain consciousness and artificial intelligence is born. The singularity for a wine drinker is when the amount of wine that you're purchasing suddenly begins to outstrip the amount of wine that you're drinking on a daily basis. That is when you become a collector whether you know it or not. This is excellent. You want the singularity. Wine is such a strange product because we tend to sell it to you uh, before it's ready. It's like buying an unripe avocado at the store and bringing it home, anticipating that it'll be ready for you to make guacamole next week. With wine, we're not really looking at weeks. We're looking at months, years, uh, sometimes even decades. Although, I don't want people to assume that every wine can last for 20 years. In fact, very few of them can. It's been said that less than 1% of wines produced are actually worthy of aging for 10 years, if even that. but if you want to start collecting wine and get even a couple of years on a few bottles, you need to know how to keep them. There are four factors to consider when you're planning where in your house you're gonna keep your wine. And those factors are light, temperature, humidity, and vibration. Number one, light. This is the easiest for you to manipulate, but it's also one of the most damaging factors against wine. You want to keep your wines away from natural sunlight because UV radiation will cause something that's called light strike, which sounds like a magic card, but it's actually damage that's caused to a wine by UV getting in and messing with with the molecules basically. Most bottles are tinted and treated to resist UV radiation, but you don't wanna play with fire. So it's best to just keep your wines in a dark place where you have complete control over the lighting. The second factor is temperature. And I was wrong. Temperature is actually the most important thing, even more so than lighting. Because if you have a wine too cold or too hot, especially too hot, you will ruin it faster than you could possibly imagine. I was at work a couple of years ago and I was uh, reading information off the back of some labels. And so I had three bottles of wine sitting in my office. This was the evening. It was April, early April the sun had already gone overhead and i put those three bottles of wine onto the windowsill of my office and then i went home i got into work the next morning at 9 o'clock and the early april morning sun just a couple of hours of sunlight had done enough damage just by shining through that window to completely wreck all three bottles the wine had expanded it had pushed their corks out and all three of them tasted like balsamic vinegar heat and sunlight together but but heat is the big factor here very very bad for wine. The ideal conditions that you want to cellar your wine in are somewhere between 12 and 15 degrees celsius. That is the optimal. If it's a little bit cooler than that, or if it's a little bit warmer than that, not so bad. The danger zone for wine starts around 21 degrees celsius and the low end of danger point is kind of around four degrees celsius. So realistically, you can store your wine anything between, say, 5 and 20 degrees Celsius without being too concerned, as long as you keep it stable. Fluctuations in temperature, if it's going up and down and up and down, will completely erode that wine. And so whether it's 8 degrees or whether it's 18 degrees, you just have to keep it constant. And that 12 to 15 degree mark? Perfect. Absolutely perfect. The third factor to talk about is humidity, and I'm just going to say briefly that ideal humidity for storing wine is between 50% and 75%, and I will say no more about that because I don't understand humidity and have nothing interesting to add. The fourth element to consider is vibration. This is unfortunately something that's going to be pretty much out of your control. You know Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow's apartment in the movie seven, where the train runs right by their window and everything shakes and all the dishes shake, and by the end of that movie, neither of them are really in a position to care about that anyways, but for you it will be an ongoing concern. If you live dangling from the underside of a skytrain track, or if you're next to an airport, heavy machinery site, or anywhere that you're getting constant rumbling vibrations coming through your home, then you might have a problem for wine. That is going to cause it to break down much, much faster. So if you live in a place that has this vibrational hazard, um, you're pretty much going to have to build a gyroscope assembly to keep your wine hovering in a neutral position suspended off the ground. Or you can store your wine at your parents' place. Now, I'm down here in my own cellar and I want to talk about conditions that I have here. You see, I don't have a fancy barrel cellar created in my own home. I keep about uh, about 150 bottles of wine here and I have them down in my basement. The temperature down here is great. It never goes above maybe 17 degrees, even in the hottest point of summer, and it stays fairly consistent even through the different seasons. And this is where I keep all my wine. I've built some wine shelves so that I can keep the wine sideways and I can clearly see the ends of all the bottles. I'll admit that I have a couple of boxes here that I'm stepping over that have wine that I haven't categorized yet or that I don't have space for on the shelves. But this brings me to the idea of technique. How do you store your wine? A lot of people know that it's recommended for you to store wine sideways, but that is a little bit dependent on how that wine is packaged. You see, the idea of keeping a wine sideways is so that you keep the cork moist. Cork is still the most common method of sealing a bottle of wine, but cork is organic. It's natural, and that means that it is prone to um, natural failure. It can crack, it can split, and it can allow too much oxygen to get into your bottle of wine and wreak havoc on it before you have a chance to drink it. The solution is to keep your bottle of wine sideways so that the cork stays saturated, stays damp, and therefore doesn't dry out and crack and let oxygen in or wine out. But lots of people have asked me if they need to still keep a bottle of wine sideways if it has a screw cap sealing it or a synthetic cork, and the answer is no. There's no reason that you have to keep a screw cap bottle sideways because the screw cap isn't going to fail in the same way as a dry cork. Like I said, there's some boxes down here on the ground that I'm stepping over top of where I didn't have space to put them on the wine racks. Well, what do I do there? Do I turn the box sideways? Well, that's kind of clumsy. It risks them falling out. And so what I do is I just flip all the bottles upside down inside the box so that they're all just facing cork down. It's exactly the same as cork sideways. It keeps the cork saturated, keeps the bottle of wine safe. The last thing I want to talk about in terms of storage and cellaring is your system of organization. Because I work in the wine industry, I wind up collecting a lot of wine. And I collect wine for all different reasons. I'll go into tasting bars, I'll try things, I'll buy bottles of wine that I think would be really good to talk about in a class, or I'll buy bottles of wine that I think would be really good with a certain type of food. And I always think to myself, I'm going to remember this. I'm going to remember why I bought this wine or what I'm going to do with this wine. Of course, I'm going to keep it all right up here. Steel trap. And then the highwayman comes on the radio, you know, the highwayman by the highwayman, and I start thinking about that weird Johnny Cash verse where he's talking about being a space trucker, and it's gone. So, what I did a while back is I invested in a pen that can write on glass, that can write on bottles. And now I write upside down on the neck of the bottle so that when I put it sideways into my shelf, I can read it. I write whatever the context was. I will write the date that I got it. I'll write who I got it from, if it was a gift or something special. And then I write what the purpose is. Some people keep spreadsheets on their computer to track all the wine that they have. Some people have a physical inventory, like a manifest. And some people use apps like Cellar Tracker. All of these methods work because they are methods. The point is, once you start to collect enough wine, you're gonna need a method to keep track of it so that you're not forgetting about wines that need to be drunk and missing their perfect window. And that, speaking of perfection, is an excellent segue into what makes a wine age well? Topic number two for the day is, why do certain wines age better than other wines? And how can you recognize which are which? There are five major factors to determining what's gonna make a wine age well. And the nice thing is that three of those elements are things that you can just read directly on a manufacturer's tech sheet. Not every winery does this, but a lot of wineries will publish technical documents on their website that tell you some of the finer details of how a wine is made. And three elements that are commonly listed, and that also are the first three factors that we look at for how a wine ages, are acid, sugar, and alcohol. The other two factors that are not easily quantified on a tech sheet are tannin levels and how the wine is packaged. Let's start with acid. Some people find acid a little bit scary. You know, it's a sort of a caustic warning label, picture of a red hand dissolving, something that gangsters use to destroy bodies. But all wine is acidic, and what's more, we love it. It adds freshness, it adds brightness, it adds energy. And a low acid wine, a really low acid wine, tends to taste flabby and kind of limp. But the other thing that acid does is it keeps wine alive, and a high acid wine will keep for a lot longer than a low acid wine. Sugar is another pretty decent buffer against the ravages of age. A little bit of sugar isn't really going to make much difference, so the difference between a dry wine and an off-dry wine isn't really going to tip the scales too drastically. But when we get into dessert wines, or when we get into sweet sparkling like Prosecco style, or we get into sweet fortified wines like Port, that level of sugar is going to really help that wine keep Ice wines age beautifully and one of the reasons is that you're taking uh, usually a high acid grape like Riesling to begin with and then you're leaving quite a bit of sugar in there and both those factors together are going to keep it alive for decades. And since I mentioned fortified wines like port, the third factor that we're looking at here is alcohol. Alcohol is a bit of a funny one. It takes a dip right in the middle. If you have a low alcohol wine, it actually will age quite well. And then if you have a high alcohol wine, like a fortified wine where you're pushing more than maybe 18% alcohol, those are going to age really, really beautifully. Some of the longest lived wines in our world right now are fortified wines that have the triple advantage of high alcohol, high tannin to begin with, and some element of sweetness too. The weakest point in the alcohol scale for aging is ironically where almost all of our wines are falling which is right in the middle anything between say 13 and percent and call it maybe 16 percent is this volatile zone of alcohol when you have a 14 and percent red wine which is incredibly typical for the south okanagan that is a, an area where you can get some testiness the alcohol can destabilize the wine when it's at that level If you have lower alcohol wines, if they're below 13.5%, then you're safe from that volatility. And when you've pushed over 16%, then you've gotten to the saturation of alcohol, where it takes over and, as the name implies, basically fortifies the wine. Now, this is not to say that you have to go down to your cellar and dump out all your wines that are 14 or 14.5% alcohol. They're probably fine. They're just not receiving the benefit that comes from either low or very high alcohol. Next, let's finally talk about tannin. This is a really important factor that a lot of wine drinkers are at least tangentially familiar with. White wines don't have tannin. Red wines have tannin. Light red wines like Pinot Noir have very little tannin. Heavy red wines like around here in BC, you'd be seeing your Cab Soves, Your Petit Verdot, maybe some Syrah. These are wines that are going to have high tannin. And high tannin wines are going to age better than low tannin wines because the tannin creates a barrier, a buffer, to reuse the word that I've used a whole bunch already. And this barrier, this buffer, is here to protect against oxygen. All wines are going to have some oxygen inside them already. There's a little bit of headspace in every bottle. We don't fill it directly to the top. And there's more air getting in and out even while the wine is sitting sealed up and that oxygen threatens to deteriorate and degrade the quality of the wine but tannin gets in its way first a really ideal candidate for a wine that you should put into your cellar and keep for a few years is a young red wine that has beautiful flavor interesting aroma characteristics that you really enjoy however in which the tannin is just a little bit too rough and a little bit too grippy to begin with. Tannin can be abrasive, it can be harsh, but it does not stay that way. If the tannin in a wine is tasting a little bit too rough, a little bit too aggressive, you just give it time. You just give it a couple years and it'll smooth right out. And that wine will be so much better for it. The final thing to consider is how the wine is actually manufactured, how it's packaged up. We already mentioned this before, but tinted bottles are going to be more resistant to light exposure. Clear bottles, on the other hand, like those that are used to package rosés that you can see the beautiful color through, pose quite a risk and you need to pretty much immediately put them in the dark and keep them in the dark or you have to drink it. I recommend drinking it. The other element of packaging to consider is the closure, how the wine is sealed. Does it use a cork? which is soft and porous, and therefore allows a little bit of air to come in, a little bit of air to go out, and generally is considered to be better for the aging of red wines that have a lot of tannin. Or is it sealed with a screw cap, which is going to generally give a tighter seal, which will allow the wine to keep stability and keep stasis for a longer period of time, although maybe not evolve in the same way that the cork would encourage a high tannin wine to. Now i just want to speak in general terms right here because screw caps have now advanced to the point where you can get these brilliant closures that allow oxygen to transfer in and out of the wine and can pretty much age a bottle just as well as a cork but speaking in the most traditional terms corks tend to encourage a bit more airflow and screw caps tend to discourage it to try to maintain freshness and consistency in a wine without allowing it to break down as fast the upshot is that both of the wines will age both of them can cellar well but the ones with the corks you have to watch a little more closely to make sure that they're not shooting past their mark and starting to over oxidize screw caps tend to be a little bit safer hopefully at this point we have some perspective on what makes a wine age well and so we come to the big final question what should you be drinking from your cellar what are you going to be opening up tonight? Well, I've already given you the basic guidelines. And so you should be able to think now, okay, high tannin red, that's going to age well. High acid, high sweetness, that's going to age well. Fortified wine ages well. Dessert wine ages well. But let's get to some specifics now. When I got married, during the ceremony, my wife and I sealed up a box that had a bottle of wine inside, as well as some letters from loved ones with the intention of being able to open it after 10 years. At least that was the intention. We wound up actually setting it to five years, and the reason was I spoke to a very skilled and very wise winemaker who suggested that maybe 10 years was too optimistic. In his words, he didn't think that there were many British Columbia wines that were designed to last 10 years. Now, since that time, I have found many examples that I would use to refute that idea of his. I believe that there are many British Columbia wines that can age very nicely to 10 years and perhaps even beyond. But we are still a new world wine region. And when you compare us to an old world wine region like Italy or France or Spain or Germany, where you have a depth of history that can be drawn upon. You have very old vines, and you also have a culture surrounding the wine that encourages long age. Here, uh, we basically need to make the wine and sell it right away. Most of us are still paying off the properties that we're on, and that means we can't be constructing wines that take 10 years just to get good. They need to be palatable, well, basically weeks after they're bottled. And because of that immediacy of intention, these wines are necessarily going to be a little bit more short-lived. Luckily, wines don't have just a steep cliff that they drop off. They go into a decline, which means you might get to a bottle of wine that is a year, two years past its prime, and it doesn't make it undrinkable. In fact, that wine can still be quite enjoyable. But there might be just something in your mind where you're thinking, this would have been better if it was just a touch fresher, just a bit more tannin to it, just a little bit earlier. And so, because I don't know what's inside your cellar, to paint in broad strokes, let me just tell you this. The average British Columbia white wine is designed for maybe two or three years of aging potential. And oftentimes, they're best drunk within the first year. A lot of British Columbia reds are designed for eh, somewhere between three and five years of aging. Some of them, specifically, are designed for longer. But you rarely want to go more than ten years for a British Columbia wine. The whites that tend to age well are things like Riesling because it has high acid and sometimes has higher levels of sugar. Chardonnay, Chenin Blanc, Semillon. I see I'm looking at a bottle of Inniskillen Chenin Blanc that I've been saving and I'm quite looking forward to seeing that. Chenin Blanc can take on almost an oily chamomile tea element with age. And I love, of course, aged Riesling because it develops petrol characteristics. It starts to smell like a gas can in the best possible way. With red wines, as you age them, you tend to see uh, more of these elements of oxidization, nuttiness, tobacco, various mixtures of toastiness, uh, vanilla, cocoa, butterscotch, coffee. If you have a Syrah, it'll tend to bring out um, either more floral aspects like violet or more smoky aspects like uh, getting into cured meats. Pinot Noirs will tend to lean into earthiness and forest floor and uh, your, your cab sauves and your merlots will tend to go much more towards these um, sort of cigar boxes these, uh, these desiccated dry tobacco leaf characteristics. If you like the bright fresh fruitiness of a wine you want to drink it when it is young an aged wine is not inherently better than a young wine it's just different young wines showcase a lot of the primary characteristics of what you're getting from the grape itself you're getting fruit you're getting flowers you're getting herbal characteristics and as the wine ages it shows these tertiary characteristics which is what we call the characteristics that come with age like i said these are the tastes of oxidization the nuttiness The toastiness, the somewhat more subdued or earthy characteristics. To give you some dates, if a red wine was harvested in 2010, and of course the year that is on the label is the year of harvest, it has nothing to do with when the wine was produced, when it was manufactured, when it was released, it always has to do just with the harvest. So if your bottle of wine says 2010, means it was picked in 2010, Let's say it took two years producing it, so it was a released, or released, bottled in 2012. So at that point, we would say that that's an eight-year-old wine. For white wines, if a wine was harvested in 2016, took maybe less than a year to produce, released in 2017, you'd be looking at a three-year-old white right there. And that would be a pretty good year to start with. So if you have any reds that are older than 2010, and if you have any whites that are older than 2016, I would get to those first, and I would drink those right away just to uh, make sure that they are still good. And if you have any rosés kicking around from any vintage, you should probably drink those now too. When things are starting to warm up, spring is here, and generally speaking, rosés are not necessarily designed to age. They're designed for immediate consumption. And besides, you can always order more from your favorite Oliver Essoius winery. And if you have any sparkling wines, basically treat them like still wines. It's actually quite surprising how few, even proper French champagne, are designed to age for more than 10 years. I know people have the perception of champagne being a wine that you keep forever and ever and ever, but those are champagnes coming from very specific vintages under very specific circumstances. And generally speaking, after a sparkling wine is bottled, it is similar to a table wine in its aging potential. But the last and best advice that I can give to you is that if you have a particular bottle of wine in your cellar that you're curious about, something that you're interested in trying, but you don't want to taste it too early, you want to be able to give it its due and allow it to age and mature into something that will show its best self and give you the best experience, how do you know if you should drink it or not? Well, I can't tell you because this is a one-way audio medium and I can't actually hear what you're saying to me right now. I'm sorry, no matter how hard you try. Instead, you got to just ask the winery itself. As I already mentioned, some wineries post text sheets online that have material data about the wines that they've made. And those often include cellaring recommendations, how long they think that you can put it down for. But even better than that, just send them an email or give them a phone call and tell them that you have a bottle of this wine from this year and you just want to know how it's shaping up. Generally speaking, we at the wineries tend to keep our wine even after we sell out. We'll hold back some bottles of every vintage and we'll go back to them from a winemaking perspective to understand the way that they're aging. Which means that the winemaker at a winery will usually understand how everything tastes still from their back catalogue. So there's really no harm in asking. Thank you all for listening to Uncork the Sun today with me. I hope that you've learned a thing or two, and more than that, I hope that you're inspired to dig into your own wine collection at home, or to expand your wine collection by ordering some BC Wine Online right now from any of the 40-plus wineries that are offering special shipping deals right now from Oliver Asoyuz Wine Country. To find a list of these wineries and to learn more about them, your place to go is www.oliverasoyuz.com to explore the full range of Oliver Asoyuz Wine Country. As well, I really hope everyone's going to join us for the live video tasting next week on Tuesday, April 28th. More details to come on the Oliver Asoyus Wine Country Facebook page and Instagram, so follow us now to keep up to date with our coming virtual events. And if you want to post about the show, use the hashtag UncorkTheSun. The next podcast in this series will be released in two weeks' time, so keep an ear out for that as well. If you have any questions about wine that you'd like answered, or topics that you'd like me to cover on this show, you can reach me at moss at vinstitute.ca. That's moss, M-O-S-S, just like the plant, except I'm a human being, at vinstitute.ca. This podcast is a collaboration between Oliver Asoyus Wine Country and the Vinstitute Wine School. The music for this episode was kindly provided by my friend Olav. To hear more of his work, visit OLAV, that's O-L-A-V, vbandcampcom The host has been myself, Moss Kogel, in my house, hiding from my children. Whether you're experiencing the beauty of the South Okanagan from the comfort of your own home, or whether you're planning a trip here for the future, we hope that you will uncork the sun with us.